So what happened to COVID over the past few days? I've noticed with interest the news stories covering Russia's invasion of Ukraine as their forces march on Kiev or Kiev or how, how are you supposed to say that word? I'm not sure anybody really knows. But those embedded journalists have been bringing us stories of courage and bravery and danger along with the news of how the militaries are doing. But then it just made me ask what happened to COVID? As all news goes, people tire of hearing one story and are interested in new stories. And certainly Russian aggression in Eastern Europe is far more interesting than the fact that the CDC made a major COVID announcement this week. Maybe you weren't even aware of that. They did, but very few people heard it because it's not just interesting anymore. The major interest is in how a Jewish leader of Ukraine is supposedly leading a neo-Nazi government. And so the Russians would have us believe. Of course, that's propaganda, but it's also news. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen. And of course, this is the most important military operation in Europe since Bosnia, and probably since World War II. And so it's captured our attention. And I've read Christians responding on social media with prayers for our dear brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia and all of the people caught up in the conflict. And certainly we're concerned. That's a good thing. But what about God's agenda in Europe? What does war in Europe between Ukraine and Russia, or Russia and anyone, what does it mean for the church and for missions? I started thinking to myself, what if the news story was written like the way Luke wrote the book of Acts. And there was a king, and his name was Putin. And he raised his army up and gathered around the, the city of the Ukrainians and fought against them. You, you see how it could be kind of biblicized. I, I asked that question because there's always geopolitical forces at play in human affairs, but there's still spiritual forces determining how these things go. One well-known pastor wrote an article about the situation and end times. It, does this fit into Bible prophecy? Is there a connection? And I thought probably, but then everything that happens in the future is somehow connected to the end times or else there's no connection at all. That doesn't make sense. So what I think is important to recognize is the fact that far above political reasons for Russia to attack Ukraine, there is a spiritual war where Satan is attacking his church. Don't be misled. Satan is far less interested in Russia annexing Ukraine than he is destroying the Ukrainian church. That's where the real interest goes. That's what's really happening here. In fact, Satan is always attacking the church. He's been doing it since the beginning. And throughout the study of Acts that we've been going through, we've been noticing how Satan attacks the church in various ways. And sometimes those attacks are external, like what's going on in Ukraine. He attacks the leaders of the Jerusalem church, or he attacks the Greek-speaking Jewish converts to Christianity. He even tries to have these people murdered through different means. He attacks the church externally. But he also attacks the church internally. Think about this. 
If you remember the story from Acts 5, how terrible would it have been if Ananias and Sapphira had succeeded in their plan on what they were doing in terms of gaining popularity and influence through their half offering? What would have happened if people who lie and manipulate like that became leaders in the Jerusalem church? What would have happened to the church? That's an internal attack. Or how do you think the mission to the Gentiles would have worked out if the church would not have been able to figure out how to help Christian widows from a different ethnic background? How would the Gentile mission at all have succeeded if Christianity were first Jewish and then Christian, as some tried to make it be? And alongside these two internal attacks, we find one more in the book of Acts. As Satan applies cultural pressure on the church, on believers, to modify the gospel message by introducing pagan ideas. And by the way, this is what happens later in the church at Colossae. Satan doesn't just win if we stop preaching the gospel. He doesn't just have to stop us from doing it. No, he wins if he can also get us to modify it even a little. And this approach actually is much more common than you think. In fact, in the last hundred years, we've witnessed here in America various attacks on the gospel itself, attempts to modify the gospel. The first being the early part of the 20th century was the social gospel. This was an attempt to bring Christianity to social issues but was quickly corrupted into thinking that Jesus' death was more about restoring social order than redeeming man from his sin. And then along the middle of the 20th century came the free grace movement. I call that cheap grace. This is what Pastor Joe has emphasized the last couple of times he preached. The free grace gospel believes you don't really have to repent of your sin and, and good works and a continued belief will not necessarily follow saving faith. It's just enough if you mentally assent to the gospel message. And right on its heels came from Jack Hiles, by the way, who influenced a whole bunch of evangelicals. The idea that just pray this prayer and you're saved. There are a lot of young people who grow up in Christian homes who are lost because they were taught just pray this prayer and you're saved. And this, they would go door to door through the communities in Chicago and knock on the door and get people just to repeat the words of the prayer and then say, you're saved, and then come back to the church. And I led 10 to Christ. I led 15 to Christ when nobody was following Christ after that. And that's an attack on the gospel. And then I think even some forms of Pentecostalism where... It was just a blend of spiritism and Christianity together instead of salvation by grace through faith. Predominantly, this is what you see in Asian countries and the Pentecostalism there. That's why it became so popular. You could blend Pentecostalism with spiritism very easily. But these are just examples of the various attacks on the gospel in the past hundred years. And there have been lots of subsets of these. I don't want to get into... Great detail, but critical race theory uh, comes out of the social gospel, and I could take a long time to try to explain that to you. And if you want to talk about it, I'd love to. It'd be a fun conversation. But that's where it comes from. 
It's the social gospel. There are a lot of subsets of these, but all of this is just Satan attacking the gospel advance, what we call missions, by attempting to get us to modify it or change it even in the slightest with the hopes that we will be more successful in sharing the good news that Jesus says. So consider with me first. Satan threatens gospel advance with syncretism. Culture, friends, is often pagan. You find here in verse 9 of chapter 8, a man named Simon, and it says here he was a sorcerer. He used black magic. The word here means a magician. And you'll notice here in verse 9 that Sumerian paganism involves spiritism. Now the whole story in Acts 8 about Simon reveals that he was demonically influenced spiritist. Luke indicates that his work involved this sorcery. And he straight out calls him a magician who amazed people. He astounded people with his magic. In fact, in the Old Testament, this same word is used to refer to soothsayers and astrologers, even false prophets and people who work uh, with demons. Of course, Simon, before Philip comes along, is performing his magic in order to make people think he's somebody important. He told people he was like a god or godlike. He said he was a great one. He was using these things, this false religion, this black magic, this demon influence, to try to gain popularity for himself. In fact, he wanted people to revere him. And I think here then we understand that in Samaria, the spiritist culture was controlling people's opinions. If you look at verse 10, it says it right out. The people gave him universal respect from the least to the greatest. They said of this man, he is the great power of God. This guy is like God. He has all of this power. And his opinions then, Simon's opinions, became the opinions of the people. Friends, this is an example of idolatry in its first forms. Later, some scholars believe there was actually in Rome a statue erected to Simon calling him God. There's some debate about whether that's true. But some believe that there was actually a statue of Simon calling him God. The people clearly in Samaria were used to worshiping Simon as a God. Culture, friends... Culture is pagan, but pagan culture, letter B, is fertile ground for the gospel. Verse 12, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized men and women. Philip evangelized Samaria. He's out preaching the gospel. And the gospel explained here included things concerning the kingdom of God and also things about the name of Jesus. So we don't have a gospel statement here like we have in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We have here Luke explaining that their, Philip's gospel message was about these things. But we understand this is basically what Paul was preaching this is what the apostles were preaching. Things concerning the kingdom of God and things about the name of Jesus. That Jesus saves people from sin. So this is the gospel explained. And then we find here the gospel believed because he says 
They believed the things that Philip taught and were baptized. So the, the belief here is in the baptism of the men and women, and they're identifying themselves with Jesus. Friends, let me tell you. The first element of discipleship is pretty easy. It's about identifying with Jesus. That's what a disciple does. And how does he identify with Jesus? He's baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He follows Jesus in baptism, declaring that Jesus is the Savior of his soul. That Jesus' death and resurrection has saved him from his sin. He identifies with Jesus in baptism. That brings him into a local church where he can then do and serve God in that church with other people. And this is all about identifying with Jesus. Once a person is saved, that's why we say the first real act of obedience is baptism, brings you into the church. This is all about putting on the team colors. It's all about saying, I'm with Jesus. Now, Simon, in verse 13, it changes here. It says, Simon believed also and was baptized and continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs that were done. Simon claims to believe and becomes baptized, and Luke lays the groundwork for our understanding of this guy, Simon. Because you'll notice here, look at this, verse 12, what leads the people to baptism? What does it say? They believe the message of Philip. What leads Simon to baptism? It says in verse 13, he was amazed at the miracles that Philip did. Simon didn't want Jesus, friends. Simon wanted the power of God so he could use it for himself. Now, I believe that's what's happening. We'll notice as we go through the story here, more of that come out. But what we find then is, even as Philip is preaching and people are being saved, Simon is coming along, he's alongside. I think this is he's working for the devil here. We find then that the apostles in Jerusalem decide to send stability to the new church. This evangelistic campaign of I. Philip brings Peter and John to Samaria. I can think of no better people to arrive on the scene, right? Peter, this is Peter and John. And they bring stability to the church through the transmission of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to explain why these people, because of Philip's preaching and baptism, hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. I think a lot of this has to do with the book of Acts is a bridge book between the Gospels and the Epistles. We understand that the Spirit now today comes with salvation. What the story here kind of resembles the followers of John, Paul evangelizes. But whatever the case, I think the problem, a lot of it has to do with the problem of Simon. He's not going to receive the Spirit. <clears throat> and obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, these, these two disciples, these apostles of Jesus, John and Peter, are teaching the people how to follow Christ. It says they are praying and they are laying on hands. So what you really have going on here is the gospel is coming into that pagan culture. It's fertile ground for the gospel and, and people are being saved. Can I just stop for a second and say this? Isn't that still true today? Isn't that true? Do we live in a pagan culture? You betcha. It's really pagan. It was pagan 50 years ago. It, the paganism was just kind of hidden. But it's out in the open now. We live in a very pagan culture. Is it not still fertile for the gospel? Now, all of that's going on. 
And Satan is doing his work because what he wants, let her see, is to blend the gospel with paganism. Simon, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given. He saw that. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Simon, as an unbeliever, desires to have true spiritual power. He saw what was happening through the apostles. Remember, earlier it says, Simon was watching Philip. He believed and was baptized and was watching Philip and the miracles that he was doing. Simon is really focused on those miracles. And now he sees Peter and John and the laying on of hands and all the miracles that are going on there. And he wants that power for himself. He covets that power. And obviously, we now know something about Simon. He, he wants to promote himself. All of this is unbeliever behavior. He offers them money as if you can buy the power of God. Friends, that's a pagan response to true spirituality. The idea of Christianity is that there's nothing in us. It is all of God. Paganism lays a groundwork that brings humanism. It brings human works into the equation. It's somehow we are doing it ourselves. God's just kind of on the side. And every pagan, every false religion teaches that same truth. You must do and then you live. But the Bible says you believe and you live and then you do. And any gospel that teaches doing things in order to merit God's blessing, favor, to earn and win heaven is a false gospel. The only gospel, the only basis on which we can be accepted is that Jesus died for our sins, that his blood has covered our sins. And what Simon wants is the power of God artificially. I mean, think about how terrible this is. Think about what's really going on here. If, Satan, if Simon can buy the power of God, then what does this mean? Doesn't this cheapen the gospel? Doesn't it change it somewhat? Doesn't it make the gospel really all about miracles and all about human means? I mean, healing lame people is great, folks. But lame people still die and go to hell. Healing blind people and making them be able to see is wonderful. But, but they still go to hell. Blind people do. Even seeing people do. You can heal a person. doesn't change his soul. Only God can do that. Simon wants to borrow God's power. He wants to rent it on the cheap. And I think this cheapens the gospel as if the gospel needs human help or human aid. It cheapens the gospel by adding human ideas and philosophy. I've heard people say, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if some great celebrity really became a Christian? Wouldn't it be great if that were true? Wouldn't it have a huge impact on the world? And the answer is, yes, I guess, in some human sense, there are have been examples of celebrities who got truly born again and began using their celebrity for Christ. I guess Kirk Cameron comes to mind. But, but was there a great big gospel movement because of that? 
Do you not know what the world does to people who turns its back on them and follows Jesus? They turn their back on him. You can have some famous musician, some famous politician, some elite truly become a Christian. God calls some of them to himself. But let me tell you something, friends. It doesn't change the outcome. God has always been doing it the same way. He takes ordinary, average people, or as it says in 1 Corinthians, the base of the world, right? You read 1 Corinthians, you realize God's assessment of us from a human perspective. We're the base of the world. We're not the mighty. He takes the fools of the world, not the wise. He takes the poor of the world, not the rich. And why does he do that? Because if we're going to boast, let us glory in the Lord. Let us boast in the Lord. Let's not say it was by my wisdom. It was by my power. It was by my riches. It was by my influence that all of this happened. No, it was by God. He did the work. I mean, this is the exact story you see replaying itself in the Old Testament. If Gideon had an army of six million and had beaten the Midianites, what would it have been? But how much greater that with just a few hundred, he was able to conquer a mighty army. That's to the glory of God. And I think Satan's desire is to get into where we are internally and say, all we have to do, all we have to do is blend a little bit of paganism, bring a little bit of pagan culture into the church. If we can do that, then we can really win them. But what's actually happening, friends, is that the church isn't winning the culture to Christ. The culture is winning the Christians to the culture. And the gospel isn't really advancing because of that. It's going the other way around. So, number two, because Satan threatens missions by attacking the purity of the gospel, what must we do? This is point number two. Our commitment must be to a pure gospel. We must resist threats to gospel purity. Peter says, your money perish with you because you thought, you believed that with the, you could buy, you could purchase the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. That's where I think he's being called an unbeliever, by the way. I think Peter's saying it pretty clearly. <laughs> you are not with us because your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent of your wickedness and pray, God, if he thought of, that the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. I perceive you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken come upon me. This, All of this means to resist threats to the gospel. It means recognizing the threats to the gospel. We have to be able to see them for what they are. We have to see the desire to bring the pagan culture into Christianity as a threat to the gospel itself. We have to see that and say, we don't have any part of that. Peter's response indicates that he recognized this offer as a threat to his mission's work. What would the gospel have done in Samaria if Simon had been the same power as, as these men had through the Holy Spirit? Well, it would have just been Moses fighting against the sorcerers of Pharaoh. Throw down your staff, they becomes a serpent. They throw down their staffs, it becomes a serpent. If they could replicate all the same signs 
<laughs> that Moses was doing, then what would it have meant for Moses? You just have the same power as these guys have. Peter's response to the offer is on a spiritual level. He's not tempted by the money at all. Because, friends, money is nothing to God. God already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The wealth in every mine. That was the gospel song I learned as a kid. He has the rivers and the rocks as well, right? The sun and the sky that shines, something like that. God, God already has all that. You can't buy God's power anyway. So he's, he's recognizing the threat and he's rejecting the threat. And, and his evaluation now is of Simon that he's a non-believer in verse 23. You, you have a sin problem, Simon. You're in the gall of bitterness and you're still enslaved by your sin. You have no part. You have no lot. No real inheritance in what's going on here for God. You are not with us. And Peter calls on Simon to repent. My friends, that's gospel truth right there. Repent. I think, I think here in verse 22, we see Peter giving Simon the gospel again. He rejects his offer and says, no, Simon, what you need is you need Christ. So he says, repent. I can resist threats to the gospel purity then by preaching the gospel itself. I, I, can, I can respond to people who want to twist the gospel by preaching the gospel. And by it, offer forgiveness for sin, which is what the offer of Peter is to Simon. You know, what's sad is that Simon could have had the power of God very easily. But the problem Simon had is he wanted the power of God, I believe, for his own purpose. And God will only give his power to those who will do it for his glory. It is a danger to young preachers, my friends. It is a danger to young ministers to be told they preach well, lest they get a big head and start thinking, it is by my preaching that people are turning to Christ. I read a story a few years ago that was a little bit nauseating of a pastor in Florida. This, this man is, is no longer living. Whether he's with the Lord or not, I have no idea. That should tell you how the story is going to end up, right? That's kind of sad. It's a pastor in Florida. And during the Sunday school hour, he was calling in girls, 11-year-old girls, 10-year-old girls into his office and kissing them in his office during Sunday school. And then he was justifying his actions because he would get up then and preach to a large audience and people were getting saved and, and joining the church and the church was growing. And he said, this is what he actually said later. I, I didn't think what I was doing was really wrong. And there was no real repentance in his heart. Now, my friends, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The power of God only comes in the place where it brings God the glory. Jesus could do nothing in his hometown. Why? Because of their unbelief. And so here's Peter saying to Simon, you need to repent. Oh, and by the way, you can be forgiven. But how sad. What does Simon say? You pray for me. That none of these things will come upon me. I don't want the consequences. But he never says, I pray and I ask God to forgive me. This is why I would say Simon's not a believer. And I think what the early church says, Irenaeus and Eusebius and other people who write of Simon later, 
in the second and third centuries, they say Simon became the leader of the Gnostic sect in Jerusalem and in Rome, and he actually became P Peter's opponent, that they often debated each other in public in Rome. And that Simon was a purveyor, a preacher of a false gospel, and he opposed the church. That's what church history tells us. Now, all of that seems pretty discouraging, but let me just tell you, here's, here's the great part of this story. It doesn't end here. Because Luke then adds this next story, and the next story just kind of sits out there. Like, it, there, why is it there? I mean, you're writing the story. You end with Simon. You talk about Peter and John going back. They preach in all the villages, and then they go back to Jerusalem. And where does he go next? I mean, he's going to have to talk about Saul getting saved. He's going to do that in chapter 9. But, but why add this story? And I think the answer is this. He's simply telling us something that we need to take to heart. The gospel does not need any help. Because this next story is so awesome. If there's a temptation in our hearts to somehow modify the gospel to make it more receptive in our culture, if we need to change it to reach unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary, as one preacher from Chicago said, if we need to do that, then I would say we have a very weak gospel. But if you read this next story, you realize we have a gospel that can reach a man going through a desert with his retinue, no Christians around him, headed in the middle of nowhere. The gospel can save that man because the Holy Spirit is doing the work. Notice verse 26, the angel of the Lord. Well, who is that? I'm just going to call that the Holy Spirit here. We can argue about that later, right? Is that Jesus? Is that Michael? Is that Gabriel? Is that the Holy Spirit? Well, then later we're going to have in verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, is that the angel of the Lord? Do we have two different characters here? Scholars will write dissertations on that question. But what I think what you find in this story, and you know it well, is that the Spirit is in control of the gospel's advance. He's the one doing the work. He's the one who instructs Philip to go leave Samaria where everything's happening and go out into the middle of a desert somewhere, verse 26. He's the one who tells Philip to engage the eunuch, verse 29. And he removes Philip in verse 39 out of the story and back to another place where he continues preaching the gospel. The Spirit is in control. This is the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't need our help. I don't have to make it more palatable. I don't have to make it more reasonable. I don't have to make it more logical. I don't have to make it more compassionate. The gospel has all of those things already. And by the way, the gospel is the power of God to all who believe. It is the power of God. And so I don't have to do any of those things. Or I would say to the class I had in the last hour, this is why I'm a presuppositionist. You see, you know, it all makes sense. The rest of you don't know what I'm talking about, but that was our Sunday school lesson. I don't have to make the gospel easier to understand. The Spirit of God does that. I don't have to make the gospel somehow more logical that a, you know, a guy who's logical can go, okay, I see all the pieces, I see how that fits. Okay, now I agree, yeah, that makes sense. I don't have to do that. The Spirit of God is doing all of those things. Don't you love the story? Here's the guy, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's from Ethiopia of all places. He's not from Jerusalem. He, he, he works for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her treasury. And somewhere at, in Jerusalem, driving back in Jerusalem, he bought a copy of Isaiah. So he must have been pretty wealthy. 
He buys Isaiah, and apparently he's, he, they're not very far. They're in Gaza, so the southern part there. He, he's not very far from Jerusalem on his way back, maybe halfway, and he's already read through 52 chapters. I mean, that puts a lot of Christians to shame, doesn't it? He's been having his devotions. He's read through 52 chapters of Isaiah. He can't put this scroll down, or scrolls, or lots of scrolls, however they wrote it. And he gets to chapter 53, and he's reading along, and he goes, oh, who is he talking about? I'm having trouble understanding. Is this, is this writer, is this prophet, is he speaking of himself or someone else? And Philip, the spirit goes, hey, go talk to that guy. Go tell him about Jesus. Philip runs up and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy goes, how in the world could I understand what I'm reading? And says, somebody tells me, this makes no sense. I, I can't grasp it. He didn't have the, the New Testament part yet. He had been in Jerusalem, but he hadn't heard that Jesus had died on a cross and risen from the dead. That part didn't make sense to him. And so he's, he's reading this and he's trying to figure it all out. And he's really seriously seeking. And so the Spirit says, go tell him. And Philip joins him in the chariot and he preaches to him Jesus. He doesn't preach to him Isaiah. He preaches to him Jesus. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because now he takes those Old Testament texts and he combines them with the New Testament data that we now have. And now all the pieces fall into place for this eunuch. And he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And he says, well, if you believe in your heart, if you believe, that's what Paul's going to say later to the Romans. If you believe, if you do declare that he's Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is what happens here. He says, I believe. They get out of the chariot and the guy now identifies with Jesus in baptism. All of that happens because the Spirit is in control of the gospel's advance and the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So Philip preaches Jesus to an unbelieving eunuch. He gives him the gospel. And, and in verse 40, after the Spirit takes Philip out of the way, whether it's he just picks him up and puts him somewhere else, you know, puts him on a train or a plane or a, on a camel or whether he walks, Philip leaves that spot. He goes up to another place and he's preaching all the way to Caesarea. And the end story of Philip comes to an end. But what we have here is a continued gospel ministry. And I say that to say this, friends, the gospel doesn't need our help. It doesn't need us to, to make it easier to receive. It does all the work itself. Now, What's going on in Ukraine is terrible. The Russian invasion of Europe could spread to a wider war. He threatened the United States with nuclear war this week. He threatened Finland and Sweden with war this week. I, I, I think the Balkan states now are sending millions of dollars of oil up into the Ukraine and arms and the in, in, the Rush, this Russian bear would love to have the Balkans. Bosnia, Herzegovina, all those places. All of this could lead to a wider war. What does it mean? Well, politically, personally, it could mean a lot of horrible things. But what does it really mean? What does it mean? And the, that answer is found here. It's Satan and God fighting against one another. And the answer to all of these won't be armistice. 
Because even while there's peace on earth, there's not going to be peace in heaven until that old dragon is thrown down. So the answer for us is the same. And by the way, we don't live in a world really worse than Rome. Rome was pretty bad. The Caesars were pretty awful people. I could recommend you some books, but they're pretty graphic and ugly. It's preach the gospel. It's commit yourself to a pure gospel and just preach it and teach it and spread it and share it. You go back to verse 4. They scattered and, sh and they just spread the word everywhere they went. It, the word means they evangelized everywhere they went. The people who left Jerusalem, as we looked before, Satan stomped on the ant hill and those ants just spread their colonies all over his yard. And this is what we can do here to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our loved ones. We can take the pure gospel of God and share it with them knowing that God does the work and he gets the glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. It, there's so much here. There's so much you're doing here in this story. But then we look at our, our world and there's so much you're doing in this world. We can almost see the stories going on in this world and put them right into this chapter. Oh, the temptation to try to purchase the power of God. Let us never be willing to accept any twisting of the gospel to make it better. Rather, Lord, let us resist that temptation, knowing the gospel does not need our help. And let us just be committed to its purity and to its propagation, that we would share it with others. Before I finish praying, here's what I want you to think about. Is the gospel yours? Is it yours? Paul calls it a treasure in 2 Thessalonians. He calls it a treasure that we have in an earthen vessel, in a cardboard box, our bodies. We have this treasure. The gospel is a treasure. Do you have it yourself? Do you know Jesus yourself beyond any shadow of a doubt that if you die today, you'd be with the Lord Jesus in heaven? You know that's true. If you're here, you say, Pastor, I don't know. I'm not sure. I want to pray for you. My praying for you would be no better than Peter praying for Simon. But I want to pray for you anyway, that you will turn to God and you'll turn to Christ. So if you're here, you say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me. Anybody like that? Just raise your hand. I won't embarrass you. Anybody at all, slip your hand up. Say, just Pastor, pray for me. Now you're here, you say, I'm a believer. Are you sharing this gospel with others? Are you resisting the temptation to blend it with our culture? Now that's probably where most of us are because it's a temptation on so many levels. And there are people who, Christians who point fingers at each other, say, you're doing it, you're doing it, no, you're doing it. 
We're all doing it, okay? There's a temptation to this. That's why it's in the Bible. It's something we have to fight against. But if you can think in your heart of a place where you're tempted to blend your culture with the gospel to try to make it better, that's where I would say the Holy, I hope the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to your heart. And I think I just want to leave it there. I don't even know if I want anybody to respond to that. I just want to leave it there. I want the Holy Spirit of God to do that. Maybe even the rest of the day and the week. Just work on your heart with that. Lord, help us all to be thinking about this. We don't want to change what you've taught. We don't want to blend it with some element of paganism or pagan culture. Even if that is moral or seemingly righteous, we just don't want to do that. We only want to do what you have revealed in your word. So help us to be committed to that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. And you go to the Lord.